0: Uh, what I love about my little girls is that their sense of awe and beauty. And so I have a hate, hate relationship with the sun. I both hate it and I hate it at the same time. Uh, It does. I'm not very bronzed. If you've come back, it just I don't like to sit in the sun. I'd rather be doing things. And so we do a lot of walks on the beach right in that area where the water and the sand come together. And we kind of search out shells. And when I search out shells, I'm kind of just like weeding through. And my aim is to find like the most awesome, beautiful shell in the world. But my daughter and daughters have different aims because every shell to them is beautiful. And so they would, I'm coming, I'm looking for a full shell, completely beautiful. They come up with pieces. Oh, dad, look at this. It's so beautiful. It's got holes in it. And you're thinking, it's just a, it's a mutt of a shell, right? I don't, I don't, but take it, it goes in the basket nonetheless, right? And even when we're walking, like we went into some nature and we hiked, like they, they just look at the beauty of nature and like they just are obsessed with sticks and pine cones and it doesn't matter what they look like. They're all beautiful to them. They just pick it up and it's just this scraggly pine cone. And it's just like I need to put this in my basket and I'm just thinking that's ugly, right? But they think it's beautiful and every moment in our condo like everything in our condo has a chance to become a microphone that she or they could sing together. Every table, every chair, every elevated service has a chance to become a stage for them, to just delight in singing and performing for us. There is just a wonderment in my little girls that I just adore. It's not about practicality to them or usefulness. It's about beauty. It's about the beauty of it. It's about the beauty in it. It's about the beauty for it. I don't know if you're like me, have you ever wondered where that wonderment went in our lives? And maybe it's just because I'm a pastor and I think deeply about things, but I think today, more often than not, we look at items and things and people, not with intrinsic beauty in mind, but rather with how useful or practical they are to us. And so this is the setting that we find ourselves entering, When we jump into Mark 14 today, we are inside the house of a healed man where we will find a distracted group of disciples that are bewildered by a humble woman who gives an extravagant gift to our weary and reclining Savior. And so let's add some context on that before we jump into our text in Mark. Uh, first of all, I want to thank Adam for just being on the stage dutifully and just teaching the Word. He did a great job. I've already heard it. Like, can we just have Adam now? Okay, come on, this be a little nicer to me, uh, I, would, I would ask. You know, Adam did a fantastic job. I hope to see him up here more. I'm so thankful for him. Chapter 14 kind of begins this journey of the passion of Christ that takes us through uh, these behind-the-scene moments where Jesus' public ministry has ended, and you just get to witness Jesus with his disciples and interacting with his Father. The the curtain is pulled back, and these are just holy, treasured moments that we, as believers, get an opportunity to enter into. And so when we enter chapter 14, it says that we're two days away from the Passover feast. We know this because they're talking about the chief priest and, and what they want to do to Jesus. And then we do a flashback. Sometimes scripture is not chronological. Sometimes the authors will put things together because they're grouped together. And so we flash back to an important date in Bethany where Jesus has met with this beautiful woman who does this extravagant act for him. And so today... We are going to enter into a text that literally is some of the last hours of Jesus. And in that text, what we want to do is we want to notice three different people around Jesus. We want to talk about two desires that are noble, but in tension with each other. And then we want to look at one reclining Jesus. And so three people, two desires, intention, and one reclining Savior. And maybe we'll throw a partridge in a pear tree in there as well. So let's jump into Mark 14 today. It says this, It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of the unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simeon the leper, as he was reclining at table, And so this passage starts out by talking about this quandary that is present within the religious leaders of the day, the chief priests and the scribes. They make no bones about this. They hate Jesus. They are looking for ways to get rid of Jesus. And if you want any indication on how much they disdain Christ, then you should come to understand that they're willing to break the law to kill him they're willing, they want to go into stealth mode and kill Jesus, which would be a clear violation of the judicial systems that were established in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. It would be a clear violation of the sixth commandment in the Ten Commandments that shall, you shall not murder. So if that gives you any indication, they hate Jesus. Hate him. And they need to get rid of him. The problem is, he's just so darn popular. Like, people love him. I mean, wouldn't you come to love somebody who has essentially eradicated disease from your land and restored sight to the blind and hope to the marginalized in society? He is in their mind beloved, which makes it difficult for them to kill him without inciting a riot. And their fear here is not killing Jesus, it's starting a riot, because if they start a riot the Roman authorities who have allowed the nation of Israel to practice their customs and religion in this day will flex their muscles because they're sick of it. And that will mean violence and death. That will surely mean uh, the disassembling of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish hierarchy. And so they cannot let a riot happen because their leadership is on the line. And so killing Jesus has a little bit of a problem for them. But what's fascinating, if you know the timeline to the cross, is that Jesus is actually killed on Passover. The very timeline that they were trying to avoid. They didn't want it to be in this time because here's what's happening. Every Jewish person from around the area would be required to come into the city of Jerusalem during these feasts and the Passover. The city, as it was said, would swell to over 225,000 people in this city, and they did not want to give them a match to start a fire. But there is an invisible character behind these scriptures that we have to recognize The holy God is setting his timeline. And these Pharisees and scribes and chief priests think that they might have some control, but God's got an aim here, and he's going to let his son be killed on the same day, the Passover, at the same time that all the lambs would be slayed to cover the sins of the nation because Jesus would come to cover the sins of the world. It's just who God is. He'll make his plan happen the way he wants it to happen. And so, despite all of this, where's Jesus? Reclining at a table. All of this hostility in the face of torture and death, we have a calm Jesus who's seemingly catching up with the latest This Is Us episode. See, just tranquil. All around him, people are trying to leverage to kill him, but he's reclining. And around him, we see three different people in this story. First, we've got a guy named Simon the leper. There are at least 10 Simons in the New Testament. Simon's a very common name. There's a story in John 7 that talks about uh, a, a, this, a same woman putting perfume with her in her tears on Jesus' feet by her hair that's in a house of Simon the Pharisee. Those are different events. Jesus is just by coincidence in another house of a guy named Simon who seemingly has been healed from leprosy because if you have leprosy, you don't host a dinner party Uh, because that arises some awkward conversations, some in the realm of like, hey, uh, Simon, your finger fell into my soup, right? That would be an awkward conversation if you had leprosy uh, for people. And so uh, the reason that Jesus is in this house is because Simon is thankful that he's been healed by the Savior and he's giving refuge to Christ. And so we have Simon in his home, probably his family. The second person that we see present is this woman who brings this extravagant gift. Mark doesn't give us a name of who this woman was, But the Gospel of John records the same event in the same timeline, and he ascribes this woman to be Mary, not Mary the mother of Jesus, but Mary the sister of Martha and the brother of the risen Lazarus. And so this woman takes this alabaster flask, and that would be like a marble vase that had a large neck on it that's full of nard of ointment, which would be uh, perfume. It's pure, unadulterated perfume. And she breaks it. She breaks the neck and she pours it all over Jesus. Now, these flasks would have like little rubber tips. But I don't know if they had rubber back then, but they had something, a cork or something in the top that would just, you would, you would shake it and you just get a few drops, like an essential oil little thing, just little drops. And so, notice that this is an, un, an uncommon practice at the time. Uh, we're in a day and age where hygiene isn't at the level that you and I deal with. Lots of perspiration and walking, there's no cars. And so people stink. And so it's within the custom that you would offer people perfume as they came into your house because nobody wants to smell you. That's just, sometimes I think uh, like college age, Steve Serbo would fit really well in this timeline, except for they know that they need to cover it up. I didn't at that point. So I'm a reformed man where my wife, I don't know where my wife is, but she has a lot of credit for that. And so notice that this, this is an uncommon practice to offer perfume, to, to have these elaborate, elaborate things of perfume. This wouldn't be a flask that you would pick up at your local Jefferson Point. It's not something that you would go to a mall. You would have been kind of handed down these things. This maybe could have been a family, a family heirloom. It's something of great worth. And the Bible goes out of its way to record how much this alabaster flask was worth. It says that it was worth 300 denarii. Now, to give you some context on what that means is that at the end of a working day, you were given one denarii. One day's worth was one day's denarii. And so this is 300 days of work into one perfume bottle. A whole year's salary is broken and poured over the top of Jesus. Could you imagine taking your yearly salary and buying a bottle of perfume and going to somebody's house and breaking it and pouring it over the top of somebody's head? That is what's happening in this scenario. Now, this action is not received well by some people in the room. There are a second group of people in this room. There's the 12 disciples that are in the group. that are the, 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 the third person, I should say, the group, third people that we want to talk about, and these disciples have issue with what's happened here, particularly one disciple named Judas. Mark doesn't name him, but John names Judas as the one that started this indignant conversation with the woman. We can speculate that maybe he created an argument that the other disciples maybe agreed with and and maybe that's why they said that they kind of took issue with this. Uh, But we know for a fact that it was at least Judas. Now, listen, it's not a bad idea. Like who would argue that taking a very wealthy, important gift like an alabaster jar, a flask, and selling it and using that money for the poor, I mean, you're not gonna, like nobody's gonna question your motives in that. The problem here is that it's just coming from an ennoble guy. Uh, John records this in this same story, in this same event in his gospel about Judas. He says this, He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And so what this is saying is that Judas does not have intentions to help the poor. Judas is the treasurer of the 12 disciples, and he wants to sell that flask to put it in the money bag for the 12 disciples so he can embezzle the money himself. There's not a noble purpose in this, and he somehow gets some other disciples to agree with him. They're seemingly only concerned about the practicality of this act and not the beauty of this act and so they're watching this woman pour out this very expensive perfume and Judas and some others interpret this scene through the the value of practicality why is this o- ointment being wasted like this it could have been sold they're thinking practically uh, they're thinking about usefulness they're, they're to them the oil was a commodity that was to be utilized in exchange for a measurable outcome and so therefore, pouring the oil onto the floor, even onto Jesus, was a waste. But Jesus sees this very differently. Jesus doesn't look at this woman as wasting a precious commodity. He doesn't view her actions in, through the lens of practicality. Jesus views this action through the lens of beauty. He sees the honor it. Here this woman is who's fully knowing that Jesus is going to die in a few days. And she does all that she can with all that she has to recognize all that he has done. All that she can with all that she has to recognize all that he has done. That's worship. That's a true worship. She's anointing him in his body before his death. And here in this room, we have the 12 disciples, the ones who have spent the most time with Jesus, the ones who on at least three different occasions have been told that Jesus has gone to Jerusalem and he's going to die for the sins of many, but yet they are more concerned about practicality than the beauty of the moment of being with a Savior who will not be with them in six days. And so we can look at this and think, Stupid disciples. How could they ever look at this through that lens, through a wasteful lens? And I would say that we need to caution ourselves in the outrage against the disciples because we too have this battle in our life between practicality and beauty. It's something that we battle as well. It's the tension between two desires in our lives to do work for Jesus and to simply worship Jesus. They are both great ideas to do things for Jesus is good to worship Jesus is good and but sometimes we forget one over the other. Sometimes we get so concerned about doing practical things for Jesus that we never stop to treasure Jesus simply because he is. And sometimes we worship Jesus and never get to the place where we heed his commands to care for the poor and to go out and make disciples of the world. And the reason that we do that is because we all have this natural bent towards selfishness. We lean towards practical things that are useful for us rather than seeing innate beauty in the things around us. And just like the disciples, this world, both outside these walls and in the context of church, seem incapable sometimes of seeing beyond The practicality of life. We believe value is only found in the thing's usefulness and not so much in its beauty. And when something becomes unuseful to us, we simply discard it, throw it away, or buy a new one. And sadly, this sort of practical or pragmatic vision of the world and things in it extends to the way that we see people. Do you know that today that there are 27 million slaves in the world? It is the most slaves that has ever existed in the history of the world. Why? Because we have bent ourselves to believe that people have no inherent value apart from what they can produce and what they can give to me. In this video that we just watched about our Atlanta mission trips. They talk about human trafficking. Do you know why human trafficking and and pornography are at epidemic levels in our country? It's because we've accepted the idea that people and their bodies exist merely to be used. Do we know why divorce rates are so high? Because when I no longer find my spouse or family useful, or if they're interfering with my goals, it's okay to break a promise and find a more useful partner. Why is it that leaders in Washington in the political sphere only begin to talk about issues in culture when it's politically useful for them to do it, despite the fact that they have been issues in our culture for years? It's because we value practicality and usefulness over inherent and intrinsic beauty. Like Jesus, we have been conditioned to see everything and everyone through the lens of practicality, through their usefulness to us. But Jesus reminds us that God has created this world for more than just practicality. And we can go back to the creation and see this. In Genesis 2, in the the fabric where God is weaving the creation together, in the second chapter, in verse 9, there's this fascinating verse where God establishes this perfect garden, a perfect habitat for humanity. And in verse 9, we read that God placed every tree in the garden for the beauty of their sight and to be good for food. You see, everything up to that point had its place, Use. It was all practical. Everything was practical in creation. But here this test, text lists beauty of the trees before usefulness of food. And I think, why? Why bother to talk about the beauty of trees? And why list it first? Well, some really wise rabbinic scholars long ago came to this conclusion. God created humanity, to learn that value isn't limited to usefulness. The tree's beauty reminds us that some things exist not to be used, but rather just to be adored. Have you ever been to the ocean? Have you ever just taken that step out and looked at that sea? Is there not something within you that primarily just goes, oh, It is if our creation, our body, recognizes its good designer in creation, the beauty of our designer, strictly for what it is. It's not useful to us. It's just beautiful. Sometimes we place practicality over beauty. This is what the disciples failed to see when they chastised the woman for pouring out the oil. And unfortunately, a great deal of us Christians have lost our ability to value the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of God over our desire for practical things that he can give us. We come to church these days and we want practical sermons. We want something useful for us, something that I can apply to my life to make a difference today. We want results. We want God, not because of who he is, but rather for what he can do for us. He has become this combination of WD-40 and duct tape that we think that we can put on our lives that can fix anything. And we praise him as the almighty improver and the one that makes my dreams and goals a reality. And as a result, our worship, not just singing, your worship is your life. What you give to God. Our worship often carries hidden pragmatic agendas. We believe that by giving to God, by worshiping God, that we will obligate God to act on our behalf rather than simply worshiping the beauty of God because he simply is. Our worship becomes transactional. And this is what happens when we lose sight of beauty, we succumb to the selfish inclinations of our sinful hearts and our commercial culture. Without the recognition of beauty, we miss the truth that some things exist simply to just be behold and adored. Without beauty, we have no way of recognizing the inherent and infinite value of God in Himself. The word worship alone just means to ascribe worth to. It sees intrinsic rather than transactional value. In the one that we praise. And listen, unlike religions fueled by superstitions or fear, true Christian faith does not worship God with practical goals in mind. It is not transactional. It is not even useful for you and I. Worship is impractical and beautiful. It is an act of adoration that flows from a heart that is transfixed on the beauty of who God is despite what he may give to us. Mary is worshiping beautifully. She is doing all that she can with all that she has in recognition for all that he has done. True worship requires nothing in return but the mere presence of God. David sings about this in one of his great psalms. In Psalm 27, David writes this, One thing I have asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Nothing to gaze on for him but the beauty of the Lord. Nothing for him to get from God but just to admire the beauty of the Lord. And the scripture says that this woman's act would be remembered everywhere that she would go. Everywhere, this provocative line, everywhere that the gospel is told in the whole world, this woman would be remembered. So today in 2019, that is true. Because here we are today, talking about this willful worship of a woman who did all that she could with all that she had to recognize all that he has done. She had her priorities straight. Far too often we are concerned about doing things for God without being with God. We want to do work without necessarily worshiping God, treasuring God. We want practicality without embracing what is beautiful innately in Him alone. And so can I turn your attention to one reclining Savior in our story? Does it not strike you as odd and problematic that Jesus knows that the world around Him is hostile to Him? A mob is getting ready to kill Him, but He would rather recline than react? He would rather let somebody adorn him with their hair with oil than make preparations for what is ahead. There's a perfect contentment in our Father. And this is where this woman finds Jesus, perfectly content in the face of hostility, reclining at a table. Jesus is not going to do anything for her, nothing that he's going to do for her. He's eating like she's kind of bothering him in some ways. Nothing that he's going to do for her because it's not about what he could do for her. She just wants to be with him. She just wants him, not for what he could do, but simply because of who he is. Guys, this is a picture of sufficiency. This is what allows you to sit in tragedy and have great hope. Jesus is sufficient for this woman and nothing more than who he is. No strings attached. And so friends, can I suggest something to you today? Like we all want Christ and the power of Christ to come into our life, to fix our body, to heal our disease. We want his power to come and fix our relationships, to find us new jobs, to make people kind to us we want things that are practical for ourselves we want the power of God without in treasuring the beauty of God and so friends i just want to compel to you today that you will never understand the depths of the power of a resurrected savior if you don't understand the implications of sufficiency in a reclining savior if if you don't understand the sufficiency that you have in Christ and just who he is, you will be swept away in the moments of despair because you expect him to do something for you. He says the poor will always be with us and we should not ignore that. We not should overlook that or avoid it. The priorities of the woman here are right though. She beholds the beauty of God preeminent in her life. It is the one she treasures the most above anything else and above anything that he could do for her. He is intrinsically beautiful because he is. Don't make this life about what God will do for you practically, but rather what he has done for you already. He is enough revere him for who he is alone he is worthy to be treasured and listen if you're in this room and you have not realized the depths of the sufficiency that christ has in your life simply because he is god he is christ then i say hang on because you're entering in a season where you're going to learn the depths in which christ was willing to sacrifice to come to you to realize what Christ was going to go through to be enough for you. Would you pray with me? Father, we just come before you today, and we confess that, Lord, we so often make this about transaction and not about beauty, that we are so enamored, Lord, with what you will do for us We have agendas, Lord, that if I give you this, Lord, you owe me this. And Lord, will you just, you cast out that hypocrisy in our heart that we would just come to adore you simply because you're beautiful in who you are. You're sufficient in your name alone. You're holy by your own standards. So God, move in our hearts in a way that convicts us of where we fall short that we might come and learn the sufficiency of a reclining Jesus and learn the depths of hope that we have in it. We pray this in your precious name, Christ. Amen. So look, if you're in here today and you have things going on in your life, maybe you have made this more transactional than about worshiping with all that you can all that you have for what, all that he has done in your life. Maybe you need some prayer today. Just know our prayer team is available for you in here, out there. Maybe you just want to pray for somebody else. It's a great place for you to do that well. And so let's join together as a family and sing and worship our God by song one last time.